Anytime we ordain a new officer, it's a great opportunity to consider God's wisdom in his design for the church. The church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The church is God's royal priesthood, the temple in which he dwells, the house he is building for his own name. The church is the body and bride of Christ. The church is the mother of all believers. The church is the covenant community, the new Israel, the new humanity. The church is the bearer of God's mission in the world, the embassy of the new Jerusalem, the city that is above. The church is composed of those chosen in eternity past by the Father, purchased by the Son's blood shed on the cross, and assembled into a community of faithful and holy believers by the work of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the church is the work of the Trinity. The church has her own culture, her own way of life, her own stories and symbols, her own heroes and villains, her own calendar to track time. She has sacraments to mark out her identity in distinction from the world. She has creeds to summarize her beliefs. She has her own songs and ceremonies and liturgies and pattern of worship. As an institution, the church is gathered into particular congregations. And these particular congregations, these local manifestations of the church, have defined membership. They have a disciplinary process for removing wayward members from membership. They have a governmental structure with officers and courts and councils. The, the church, more broadly considered, has these courts and councils. When we talk about the church... We often like to focus on her eternal and heavenly nature, and indeed we should. But we should not neglect those aspects of the church's life that you might say are more mundane and ordinary, even earthy. Uh, it's really inevitable uh, we have to talk about both of these things because the church is both heavenly and earthly. She belongs to both dimensions. But from time to time, it is helpful, I think, to consider the pattern of governance that God has established in his church and for his church. This doesn't seem like one of the heavenly matters, although I think it's very much connected to that. It seems more earthly, more mundane. Uh, and yet I think it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important for us to understand these things, how God has designed the community of his people to function. When Grady was ordained as a ruling elder today, what did that mean? What did that mean for him? What roles and responsibilities has he taken on because the other elders in the church have laid hands on him and prayed over him? And what does it mean for you as the congregation? There's actually quite a bit of material in scripture on these issues. Uh, but one passage that I think sheds a good deal of light on them is Exodus 18. Now, I realize it might seem odd to go to the Old Testament to answer questions like these about life in the church, but we need to remember that when we get to the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles do not invent a church order out of scratch. They don't invent a, a church liturgy or a church polity out of scratch. The early Christians inherited a pattern of governance from Israel. 
from the temple and from the synagogue, these institutions that predated the church. The, the church took the spoils of the old Israel and incorporated them into her own life as the new covenant people of God. And so the church inherited these things from Israel. And while certainly there were some changes made to fit with the transformation of the old covenant into the new covenant, the basic principles remain unchanged. And so, yes, we can go to a passage like Exodus 18 to learn about life in the church, to learn about church government. Exodus 18 contains a good deal of wisdom about the polity of the church, about the church's communal life, about the responsibilities and roles that officers in the church play. Now, if you're looking at the book of Exodus, Exodus 18 might seem like uh, a bit of an interruption at first. The book of Exodus, if you're familiar with it, the book of Exodus has been humming along with a lot of excitement. It's, it's really a pretty fast-paced narrative. You've got a burning bush uh, early in the book. You've got a tense confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh where Moses comes and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh refuses. You've got these miraculous plagues that are sent on the Egyptians. You've got the great deliverance through the Red Sea at Passover. Uh, you've got a dramatic uh, war that goes on, a dramatic battle that goes on uh, in the immediately preceding chapter, in chapter 17. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in Exodus 18 reading something that sounds more like a management textbook or a manual on leadership. You've got this exciting narrative going along, and all of a sudden, it's like we're dropped into a seminar on management techniques, and we're listening to a talk about how to delegate. Uh, it just seems kind of strange to have this in the middle of the book. This exciting story that's being told in the book of Exodus seems broken up by a chapter that uh, basically seems to boil down to some advice on leadership and delegation. But actually, I would argue that this chapter, Exodus 18, is very important to the book as a whole. It's incredibly practical, as we'll see. That is obvious. There's vital wisdom here about leadership and life in the covenant community. But there's more going on. What happens in this chapter takes us to the very heart of what the Exodus event is all about. This chapter, the events it contains, are really integral to what the book of Exodus as a whole is about. Now, to see that, I know that's a big claim, to see that, I've got to put this in context. We're going to eventually get to Jethro's advice, and that's how I'm going to really close the, the sermon this morning. But to get there, I, I want to put this chapter in context and show you what's happening here and how important it is to the story that Exodus tells as a whole, really to the gospel, to our understanding of who we are as the people of God. Uh, chapters 17 and 18 in Exodus really go together. Obviously, we only read chapter 18, but chapter 17 and 18, they're really a pair. They go together. And in chapter 17, the Israelites meet the Amalekites. The Amalekites are a Gentile people group. Uh, they're a pagan people group. They descend from Esau. Uh, they worship a false god. And they provoke war with Israel. They fight a war of aggression with Israel in Exodus chapter 17. Chapter 17 says, The Amalekites lifted up their hands against the throne of the Lord. In attacking Israel, they assaulted the Lord's throne. Well, what does Israel do in response? They chose men to lead the counterattack. They chose men to go fight this battle for them. And then Moses goes up on the mountain to pray. 
And when Moses is up on the mountain, as, as Joshua and the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites down below, whenever Moses holds up his arms in prayer, Joshua and the Israelite soldiers prevail. But of course, you can't hold your arms up all day long. And so eventually, Moses' arms grow weary and he lowers his hands. And when he does so, the Amalekites begin to prevail. And so Aaron and Hur come to help hold his arms up until the end of the day. So you can imagine, they're holding up one arm on each side. Moses is standing there in this position as he's praying, a cruciform position. He's lifting up holy hands in prayer in a cruciform position. And in this sign, uh, the Israelites conquer. And so finally, by the end of the day, Joshua's army prevails. Moses then builds an altar uh, to the Lord to commemorate the victory. And the Lord promises to continue to wage war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so the Amalekites really represent one Gentile response to the Exodus and to Israel. One Gentile response to the gospel and to the people of God. The Exodus is really the gospel in Old Covenant form. The Amalekites don't like it. They don't like that Israel has been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They go to war with Israel. That's one Gentile response to God and to his people. It's obviously a very negative response, a warring response response and it ends in defeat it ends with the Amalekites being cursed what we see then in in Exodus chapter 18 is another kind of Gentile response Moses father-in-law Jethro comes for a visit and Jethro is a Gentile now Jethro he's again Moses father-in-law he brings with him Moses wife Zipporah and their two sons Gershom and Eliezer uh, we don't know all the background on this, but apparently Moses sent his family to stay with his father-in-law for a while, most likely for their safety. While all these things are going on, Moses might have been concerned that Pharaoh would lash out at his family or that the Amalekites would lash out at his family. So he sends them to uh, be with Jethro, his father-in-law, for safekeeping. Now they're having a family reunion. And so Moses goes out to greet Jethro, his father-in-law, and of course, just like you greet your in-laws when they come to visit, he bows before Jethro, he kisses him. Again, I know that's just how it is when your in-laws come to visit, right? You bow before them. Uh, they greet one another, uh, they catch up on the latest news and, and, uh, and all of that. And what you find is when Jethro arrives, it is a total contrast with the Amalekites. The Amalekites went out to meet the Israelites. The Amalekites had an encounter with the Israelites. Now Jethro's going to have an encounter with Moses and with the Israelites, but it's going to look completely different. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites because they despised Israel's victory over Egypt. Jethro came and greeted Moses because he rejoiced in the news of the Exodus. In chapter 17, the Israelites chose men to go fight a war. In chapter 18, as we'll see, they choose men to bring peace to their community and settle disputes. You've got a contrast between peace and war. In both chapters, Moses is involved in the work of ministry all day till he grows weary. And so in both chapters, he gets help from others. It's not good for Moses to be alone, to carry out the work of the ministry alone. He needs helpers. But when the war with the Amalekites is over, you have a curse 
placed on the Amalekites for generations to come. By contrast, by the time Jethro leaves, Israel is blessed. Israel is blessed because Israel is now set up to enjoy the rule of law administered by wise men for generations to come. Chapter 17 ends with the Amalekites being cursed for generations to come. Chapter 18 ends with the Israelites being set up for blessing for generations to come. The Amalekites descend from Esau. Uh, remember the, the, the conflict between Esau and Jacob in the womb. They were already even wrestling and struggling against one another in the womb. The Amalekites carry forward that conflict in history. They intensify that conflict. And incidentally, this conflict will continue. It will continue out throughout Israel's history uh, in the life of David all the way down to the book of Esther. And that's finally when the Amalekites are completely eradicated. By contrast, Jethro is a descendant of Abraham with his second wife, Keturah. Sometimes this gets overlooked, but after Abraham's first wife, Sarah, died, Abraham remarried. And Abraham, she wasn't barren. Abraham had several sons with her, with Keturah. And while these sons were not part of the special chosen people of Israel, no doubt Abraham taught them about the true God. No doubt he discipled them in the ways of Yahweh. Well, one of those sons that Abraham has with Keturah is named Midian, and Jethro is in his line. Jethro is a Midianite. So you could say that Jethro is a Gentile God-fearer. That is, he is a Gentile who loves and worships the one true and living God, the God of Israel. He is a Gentile who worships the Israelite God, Yahweh. So think about this. When Moses married into Jethro's family, when Moses married Jethro's daughter, you could certainly say it was an inter-ethnic marriage because the people groups were, were clearly distinct by this point in history. It was clearly an inter-ethnic marriage, but it was not an interfaith marriage. So it was lawful. The Bible does not prohibit or forbid inter-ethnic marriages. It forbids inter-faith marriages, inter-religious marriages, but not, uh, not inter-ethnic marriages. So Moses' uh, marriage to Zipporah was completely lawful. So, so this is what you have then. In chapters 17 and 18, you've got this sharp contrast drawn between two responses on the part of the Gentiles to God and to his people. Two very different responses on the part of Gentiles to the Exodus. And this contrast here reminds us of God's purpose in saving his people. Why did God rescue the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt? Certainly it was to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham but it's more than that. It's so much more than that. God does not rescue Israel for her sole benefit. It's not just so Israel can be free from Pharaoh's oppression. It's so Israel can carry forward the mission that God has given to his people going all the way back to Abraham. God rescues Israel not for her sole benefit, but so that through her, the nations might come to know Yahweh as the one true God as the creator and redeemer. This is so important to understand. God saves us not just for our own benefit. God saves us that we might make him known to others. Salvation has a missional purpose. This is why we say every Christian is a disciple and every Christian is a missionary. We've been blessed in order to be a blessing to others, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God has blessed our family that we might be a blessing to all the other families of the earth. 
And when you catch this, when you see this is what's happening, you realize Exodus 18 is not an interruption in the flow of the story. In fact, if anything, you might say this is a climactic moment in the flow of the story. This is a climactic moment in the book of Exodus. This is what it's all about. Bringing the nations together, bringing the different families and people groups of the world together to worship the one true God. When Jethro hears all that the Lord has done for Moses and for Israel, even the hard things, he rejoices and he says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Jethro says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now I know that Yahweh is the greatest God of them all because he's toppled the gods of Egypt. He's cast down the idols. He's defeated them. Jethro knew God before, but through the Exodus, through God's salvation of Israel, his knowledge of God has been expanded and confirmed. And so what does Jethro do really as you come to the end of the first section uh, in verse 12 uh, in Exodus 18? Jethro brings ascension offerings and peace offerings to make sacrifices to God. He's going to lead a worship service. And Aaron and the elders of Israel come and eat bread with Jethro in God's presence. And so what do we have? We have Jews and a Gentile sharing worship and fellowship together. That sounds prophetic, right? That's really what the church is going to be all about. Jews and Gentiles coming together, all the people groups of the earth coming together in Christ Jesus to worship and fellowship together. Jethro offers a sacrifice because he is the priest of many, and that's how he's introduced. He can do this because he is a priest. Yes, he is a Gentile, but he's a priest of the true God. Now, can you think of any other Gentile who was a priest of the true God? Well, it seems to me Jethro is like Melchizedek. If you remember Melchizedek from the book of Genesis, Melchizedek was not a Levitical priest. He was not a, a Jewish priest. But in some way, he had a priesthood and indeed a priesthood that was superior to that of Abraham's family. The priesthood that would come from Abraham, the Levitical priesthood. And there's this giving and receiving that takes place between Melchizedek and Abraham. Melchizedek receives a tithe from Abraham, and Melchizedek brings to Abraham bread and wine. And that's really a sign of Melchizedek's superiority. Abraham receives from Melchizedek, and he gives to Melchizedek. Well, here it's going to be the same thing. There's going to be a giving and receiving that takes place between Moses and Jethro. Moses will receive from Jethro. He'll receive counsel and wisdom that is needed at this stage in Israel's history. A Gentile is going to help build up the covenant community. Later in history, Gentiles will contribute to the building of the temple with various uh, gifts. Uh, and, and here you see that happening in another way as Jethro, this Gentile, contributes to the building up of the covenant community. But of course, there's also a giving to Jethro. Jethro is blessed by Moses and, and Israel for through them, his knowledge of the living God is confirmed and enlarged. That's really what the first part of the chapter, the first 12 verses are all about. Moses bears witness to this Gentile, to Jethro. Moses tells him the story of what God has done. And Jethro is filled with joy. He rejoices before the Lord and he worships the Lord. 
Why has God saved you? Why has God blessed you? Why has God saved your family? Why has God blessed your household? God saves us so we can sing his praises and make known his marvelous deeds in all the earth. Salvation gives rise to mission. Deliverance leads to discipleship. God gives grace. And that grace should not hit a dead end with us. Rather, we should become conduits so that the gifts and grace of God can flow out from us and flow out through us to others. That's what you want to be, a conduit, one through whom the love and grace and mercy and gifts of God flow out to the world. God gives you blessing that you might be a blessing to others. And of course, we know God wants this to happen on a worldwide scale. So all nations come to worship him. So you have Jethro, the the Gentile, the Midianite, again, worshiping with Moses and Aaron. And that is a sign of things to come, a hint of what God wants, a foreshadowing. This is a prophetic sign of what the new covenant is all about. And again, you have this contrast, Exodus 17 and Exodus 18. The Amalekites who chose war over worship, they represent that side of the Gentile response, they represent Gentiles who go to war with God and with his people, who make war with God instead of worshiping God, who attack God's people instead of joining with them and fellowshipping with them. And what happens to the Gentiles who do that? They get destroyed. That too is a sign of things to come and an assurance for God's people. But see, really the first 12 verses are really just setting us up for what is to come. This brings us to the part of the, church, uh, of the chapter that most interests us today and I think is most directly relevant to what we've witnessed today. Uh, this is an ordination charge. What does the rest of this chapter have to tell us about life in the church, an office in the church? Well, Jethro and, and Moses have had this interaction that's culminated with their worship service. And then the next day must have been, bring your father-in-law to work day. Uh, That's how it looks, because Jethro is going to observe a day in the life of Moses. He's going to get to see what Moses' work life is like. So, verse 13, Moses sits to judge, and the people stand before him with their cases. Moses is sitting in the judgment seat. The people come and stand before him with their disputes. And Judge Moses makes a determination. Now, you might think, well, how could there be so many disputes that Moses has to do this all day long, day after day? Well, remember what the Israelites in the wilderness were like. They were incredibly immature at this stage in their history. Remember how all throughout their wilderness wandering, the people constantly grumbled against God? Well, if they were grumbling against God so much, there's no telling how they were treating each other. If they were willing to grumble against God, how might they treat one another? And so we see they produced a very heavy caseload of disputes, we think. We live in a litigious society, uh, perhaps even more so they did. And of course, that's not a compliment. It just shows, again, their immaturity. This language of Moses sitting and the people standing is basically technical language for a law court. Think about how in a law court today we have that language of all rise. You know, we use that kind of language, all rise in a court today. Or think about this, in in Presbyterianism, the ruling body of elders is called the session. Well, that word session really just means to sit. It means to sit in judgment. That's what Moses is doing. This is the session of Moses. He's sitting in judgment on the people. Now, when Jethro sees this going on, he asked in verse 14, 
Why do you alone sit and the people stand before you from morning to evening? Why does this go on all day long? And Moses explains that the people come to him to inquire of God because he is basically the expert in God's will. He is the expert in divine justice. And so that's why they bring their cases to him. When there's a difficulty, he settles the matter and he makes known the judgments and statutes of God. Jethro says to Moses, this thing you do is not good. So often when we hear that not good, like in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good for Adam to be alone. That's someone who has been given a mission too big for one person. That's so often the case. And so they need a helper, a helper comparable, a helper suitable for the task, a helper suitable for the assigned mission. It's not good for Moses to be alone. Not in this role, certainly. He needs helpers. It's not good for Moses to rule alone and judge alone. He needs others who are suitable, who can join him in this task. And Jethro explains this. He says, you and these people are getting worn out. Your caseload is too heavy. And of course, one thing that does, it means it takes too long and justice delayed, it's justice denied. Jethro doesn't actually say that, but I think it's implied by what's happening here. So it's not good for Moses. It's not good for the people either. And so now Jethro offers his solution. And one of the things I love about this is that uh, Moses, who's the leader of a nation, is willing to receive this correction and this counsel from an outsider. Moses is wise enough to humbly receive Jethro's counsel, and he's humble enough to recognize the wisdom in that counsel. So Moses here is showing his wisdom, his humility in hearing Jethro and heeding Jethro's words. So verse 19, Jethro offers his advice along with his blessing. He says, I will give you counsel and God will be with you. That is, if you'll do what I say, God will bless it. God will be with you in it. Verse 20, teach the people the statutes and laws of God. Show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. That is, don't keep all this truth to yourself. Teach others. Teach this truth. This will bring the people to maturity. Now you might ask, well, what, what is exactly is Moses supposed to teach here? After all, the law has not been given yet. The law will not be formally given until a couple chapters later in Exodus chapter 20. But even before the Torah was given at Mount Sinai to Israel through Moses, God's law was already known. At least a portion of it or a summation of God's law was known even before the Torah was given to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. And so, for example, if you go back to Abraham's day, you'll find references to the way of the Lord and to his righteousness and to his judgment. You'll see certain um, principles or, uh, or, or, or patterns that get later codified in the Torah. They're already being implemented long before the Torah is given. So the basic form of God's law was already in force. Certainly Moses knew it. He could teach it to others. And Jethro wants Moses to be the chief teacher in Israel. Because again, through that teaching, the people will be matured. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is how Paul says the church grows up to the full stature of Christ. It's through pastors and teachers. Of course, before that, apostles and prophets who gave us the New Testament scriptures. And then pastors and teachers who proclaim and, and preach and explain those scriptures. That's how the church is brought up to the full stature of Christ is through the teaching of God's word. But that's not the only way. There's more to it. And so in verses 21 to 23, Jethro lays out 
his plan. This is a polity for Israel. It, it is as if Jethro is giving to Moses a book of church order, uh, a book of church government. You might say here, Jethro invents Presbyterianism. I think that's a way to understand what's going on here. You could call him Jethro the Presbyterian. If we have John the Baptist, all right, let's claim Jethro as our own. Jethro the Presbyterian. Jethro is giving Moses a divinely inspired blueprint for the form of government that Israel needs going forward. Israel is in the process of becoming a full-fledged nation. The whole book of, of Exodus is also about this transformation of Israel moving from being a tribal peoples, where they're really one big extended family, to being a nation. A nation which is actually much more complex. It's a more complex entity, a more complex organization. Israel needs institutions and a polity commensurate with that change. And Jethro here is, give it, is here to give that system to Moses. Jethro advises a hierarchical system. That is, he affirms that authority is good and necessary. Now, obviously, authority can be abused. Not all authority is good. But Jethro affirms that authority, that hierarchy, is a necessary part of human flourishing. That certainly runs counter to the modern view, which would say that all authority is always oppressive. No, Jethro indicates here authority and hierarchy are necessary for people to prosper and to live in peace. There's nothing egalitarian about Jethro's solution to this problem. Jethro tells Moses, you need to select men qualified men, men who are able, men who fear God, men who are committed to truth, men who hate covetousness. You need to choose qualified men and place them as rulers over the people, over hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them do the work of judging the people at all times. Basically, the way Jethro sets it up, it's something like this. These men will be chosen to play this role, and these men will handle the small cases, and that will take the burden off of Moses, and everybody will be better. Moses won't have such a heavy caseload. The people will get their disputes settled much quicker. Those larger cases that these men who are chosen can't solve, those larger cases can rise to Moses. So it's kind of like these other men will run the small claims court, so to speak. And Moses will run the appeals court, the supreme court. He'll handle the greater cases, the more complex cases. And I love this. There's so many good things about this. Jethro's plan affirms the rule of law, which is so important, the rule of law, but also acknowledges that the law has to be interpreted, applied, and enforced by men. The rule of law is wonderful. The rule of law is a wonderful blessing, a great gift. But laws have to be interpreted, applied, and enforced by men. Laws can't do that for themselves. Men have to do it. And that's what Jethro is establishing here. Men who can interpret and apply and enforce the law. Now, there are several questions here, and I'm going to wrap up with a series of questions here that I want to raise and answer for you. First, it says that Moses chose these men. Uh, that makes it sound more like Moses is, say, a bishop than a pastor of some sort. Did Moses choose these men all by himself? No, of course not. There's no way that Moses could identify the qualified men in a nation of several hundred thousand. So it's likely when Jethro says to Moses, choose the men... The people will do the choosing themselves, but Moses would reserve, say, veto power. 
uh, to veto their choice if he sees some kind of problem with it. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, the same council is replayed. It actually describes the same process of choosing leaders. I think it's a reference to the same kind of process. And there, Moses actually tells the people to choose for themselves men who meet the qualifications, and a similar list of qualifications is given. So in Exodus 18, Moses, you choose. Deuteronomy chapter 1, people, you choose. It's actually both. It's actually both. Anytime a new officer is chosen, there's approval from above and there's consent from below. It's both. That's just how it works. Moses and the congregation would both be involved in the selection. And of course, that's how we do things here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. You as a congregation, choose your leaders. And note that it's leaders plural. Okay, Grady is joining a session of several men. So the consent of the governed is a key principle here. You choose your officers, but there's also a plurality of leadership. That also is a biblical principle. We reject one man rule in the church. So there's approval from below and from above. There's a plurality of officers. We reject one man rule. Uh, you see all of those things here. Second, who are these leaders? Uh, these men are elders. Uh, I, I think it's best to call them elders. Their function in this chapter is to render judgments. I'll say more about that in just a minute. That might make you think they should be called judges, and I suppose they could be. But actually, I think these men are elders. They're not called elders here in this chapter, but we know from elsewhere men who do these kinds of things are considered elders. They are the elders of the people. They're sometimes called because they represent the people and they rule over the people. Uh, sometimes they're called the elders of the gate because they would often assemble at the gate of the city and they would determine who can be admitted to the city, who should be expelled from the city. That's where judgments would be rendered is at the gate of the city. So they're the elders of the people, the elders of the gate. Now what's interesting is there were already elders in Israel. You go back to verse 12. There are elders mentioned there who came to this sacrificial feast that Jethro spread for them. So you might think, well, they've already got elders. Why don't, why don't those elders do this work? What is Jethro talking about? What is he adding that they don't already have? But it seems to me that the elders who are already in existence and recognized as such in Israel are probably the tribal heads. They're probably just the oldest guys in each tribe, just the, the old guys who oversee their tribe just because of the, uh, of the age that they have, just because of their age. They would oversee uh, their family or their tribe. They're not elected. Their position comes from age. There aren't specific moral qualifications they have to meet. And of course, we use the expression that way today. We'll, we'll talk about uh, show respect for your elders. If we use that language, show respect for your elders, we don't mean, we're not talking about somebody who is an officer, say, in the church. We're talking about somebody who's just older, somebody who's older, and uh, because of their age, there's a certain gravitas that attaches to age, and they should be shown certain deference, certain respect. I think that's what you have uh, earlier in the chapter, those kinds of elders, natural elders, you might call them. But see, here there's a recognition that age does not automatically ensure wisdom. Age does not automatically qualify you for leadership. That's one of the issues that Jethro is addressing. These elders, who are the tribal heads, are not necessarily qualified to render judgment. What Jethro is commanding and what Jethro is creating here is a group of specially chosen and qualified men who will hold an office of elder, an office, we could say, of ruling 
elder. They're not natural elders, biological elders who have their position just because of age. We could call them spiritual elders because they meet certain spiritual qualifications. They're chosen by the people who recognize that they meet these qualifications. And we should ask, what are those qualifications? Jethro spells them out. And it's really interesting to consider Jethro's list. His list is not identical to lists that you will find for the qualifications, say, for a pastor or an elder in the New Testament, like in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1. But they're very, very similar. So similar that we can say what Paul is doing is taking these Old Testament lists of qualifications and expounding on them, expanding them, uh, further breaking down the categories here into subcategories so we get an even more finely grained picture of, of who these men are to be. Jethro gives a series of qualifications. He says these men should be able, that is to say they should be competent, they must be skillful. Jethro recognizes that real-world skills are important to anyone in leadership or anyone in a judging role. To lead well, to rule well, you must be able, you must be competent. You must have real-world skills. You must understand reality and the nature of things and we can say how the world works and how people work. You need wisdom. I think that's really what Jethro means by able or competent. He's talking here about wisdom. The same term able elsewhere refers to military abilities, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. Uh, it has to do with wisdom and skill. These are to be wise and skillful men. They must be men who fear God. Of course, fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God, we could say, is the beginning of obedience. Fearing God leads to the hatred of evil. So these are men of high character, these are men of humility. The God-fearing man gives God's word more weight than anything else in his life. He reveres God. He reveres God's word. They must be men of truth. This could mean they are men of integrity, but it could also mean that they are men of doctrinal conviction. They must hate covetousness. That is, they must not be greedy. If nothing else, greedy men will have divided interests and they will be susceptible to taking bribes, something which Torah has quite a bit to say. Imagine electing politicians who could not be bribed by lobbying groups. Okay, that's the kind of thing Jethro is saying you must have in leadership. A man who can be bought is not fit for leadership because he will always sell himself out to the highest bidder. That's not the kind of man you want leading you. These men must be living exemplary lives. That's a way of, I think, summarizing what all of this is about. They must live exemplary lives. Jethro says to Moses, you must not only teach the way to the people, you must show the way the people should walk. And I think that applies to Moses. I think it applies to these leaders as well. Showing people means giving them a pattern of life worthy of imitation. And it's one reason why the scripture elsewhere puts so much emphasis on how a man manages or leads his family. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that an elder in the church must rule his own house well, having children in submission and reverence. And then Paul says, for if a man cannot rule his own house well, how will he take care of the church of God? That is to say, your family is the training ground for leadership, and if you're bearing fruit there, then we can say, oh, well, perhaps you will bear fruit in ruling over the household of God, over the church. But if there's not fruit or there's bad fruit there in your household, then... 
this is not going to be the place for you because we don't, if you can't rule in your own family and that bear fruit, we certainly don't want you ruling in the church. That's Paul's analogy. He moves from the family to the church. It's serious. Look, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or a CEO, and you can have a family that is a complete mess. Your family can be a complete disaster, and that will not have any direct impact, any direct bearing upon your work. Not so with an elder. Not so with an elder in God's church. His character and maturity must be demonstrated by what happens in his household and in the fruitfulness of his life. So in Hebrews, writer of Hebrews says, to look at your leaders and to consider the outcome of their way of life, to consider the fruit that's been born, what their lives have produced. That's what shows you these are men worthy of imitation. And note too, and this should be obvious, but I think it needs to be said today, note that these leaders must be men. Leadership in the church is a masculine work. And that's clear here and it's clear all over scripture. And there are good reasons for that. That's not arbitrary. That's not Old Testament sexism or, or, or God being a sexist. There are good reasons for it. Some of those reasons have to do with the nature of masculinity itself, which is attuned to leadership and designed for leadership. Men are simply built to be leaders, to initiate, to protect, to provide. It also has to do with the symbolism of male and female. Uh, the men who rule the church represent God the Father to his children in a special way. They represent God the Son to his bride in a special way. That pattern of symbolism Male-female symbolism goes all the way back to, to Adam who was made first in Genesis chapter 2. And then the woman made afterwards. And it sets up this pattern for understanding this. So these leaders must be men. If you bring women into the leadership, you're actually changing the religion. You're changing the nature of the religious symbolism. And that symbolism is the essence of things. It's right at the heart of things. Well, what do these men do? What is their function or their job description? Obviously, in this context, they settle disputes, they judge lawsuits, they act as peacekeepers and mediators. But if we just think of these men as judging, I think we're going to come up short, and we're not going to capture everything that's going on here. Uh, we think of judging in a certain way because of the modern law court setting. There's a lot more than that going on here. Their function is not only rendering verdicts, it's not only mediating disputes. It's obvious from what Jethro says to Moses. It includes teaching, which could be formal or informal. It includes exhorting and counseling and correcting and disciplining. This is the work of the elder, to be involved in the lives of the people, to shape the community. We need to understand, ruling elders are God's gifts to the church given to promote the peace and purity of the congregation, to be a source of wisdom for all the congregation's members, to give patterns of life worthy of copying, worthy of imitation. Ruling elders are God's gift to his people. They're rulers, they're judges, they're counselors, they're shepherds of the flock, they protect and provide for the flock, they take care of the community, they are responsible for its well-being. And they're examples because they live lives worthy of imitation. See, leadership is so, so important. The leadership of the church will always determine the culture of the church. Leadership shapes 
culture. You can see this in sports teams. You can see it in the business world. You see it in politics. The character and personality of leaders seeps into the whole organization and shapes the whole life of that institution. And that's just as true of the church as anywhere else, perhaps more so. Thus, elders have to know what the church is, what her mission is, what paths she should go. They have to know the Bible, and they have to know their people, and they have to bring the two into the closest possible relationship. That is the work of the church's leadership. And this is why it's so critical to have qualified men as leaders, because they will determine the direction and maturity level of the church. If you get a bunch of men in leadership who are cowards, they're going to sink the church. If you get a bunch of men who abuse their authority and are all too happy to just boss people around, they're going to destroy the church. You must have qualified, godly men as leaders because they will determine the direction of the church and the maturity level of the church. No community can rise above the level of its leaders. And so let me close with this. Grady... My charge to you, my encouragement to you should be obvious at this point. You are this kind of man. You have been recognized as this kind of man. Continue to be this kind of man. Live a life worthy of imitation. Blaze a trail others can follow. You're doing that. Continue in it. And to you, the congregation, my encouragement to you, my charge to you is to look to your elders. Let them be your rulers and your judges. Let them be your counselors and your examples. Follow them as they follow Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.